This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. We've seen all the video call fails by now, the mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I call it portraits because my intention is not to uh, be an impersonator. And it really is that whoever I'm portraying, I really, really admire something about the way they express themselves. And so I, I think of it as a portrait of their expression more than anything else, whether that's their physical expression or their, uh, the way they use words. That's Anna Devere Smith. She has a unique ability to theatrically define sweeping changes in our culture by presenting us with portraits of individual people. And she uncannily brings those people to life without actually impersonating them. This is so great to be talking to you because I admire you so much. Ditto. And you're such a, you're a unique person. Ditto. You invented a new form of theater and that became a new form of activism. This is amazing. Man, you're amazing. You're the teacher for all of us. Oh, no, no, no. Now we'll have to cut that part oh, out. Oh, no. That's a good part. <laughs> the thing that interests me the most is as you portray these characters, we know going in that these are real people. A writer didn't make them up. And you recreate them for us in a way that I don't think anybody else has ever done before. I've never been aware of it. It's not an impersonation. It's not mimicry. How would you describe what you do when you do that? Well, now uh, I call it portraits because... You know, I, I my intention is not to uh, be an impersonator. Uh, and it really is that whoever I'm portraying, uh, I really, really admire something about the way they express themselves. Mm. And so I, I think of it as a portrait of their expression more than anything else, whether that's their physical expression or their uh, the way they use words or their vocal impression. And I've heard you say that it's, I think it's to establish identity. How do you define identity? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm only really talking about persona or what Bertolt Brecht uh, called gestus. So I'm talking about how people 
express themselves, the external part of what you see. So you find somebody who you find interesting, someone you want to do. How do you go about it? Well, I ask them if they'll want to talk to me. And uh, usually I have a problem or a social problem in mind or a catastrophe that happened that I want them to tell me about. And, uh, and I talk to them, usually for about an hour. And uh, I record it. It used to be just on a tape recorder. But about 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I started using video because cameras got small enough for me to be able to do interviews with video without having to have a crew. So now I video record and I audio record the interviews. And then what do you do? How do, how do, you, how do you make you, that person live in your voice and your body? Because it's uncanny what you do. Well, I mean, I study them. I study them is uh, really what it is. I mean, for me, a text is almost a embodied a body embodied thing the same way that when you get a script i mean my god like a script like glenn gary glenn ross all of that language that you had to learn i'm learning um this by watching and listening as much as by studying uh what they said in a written piece of paper you know that's so interesting the idea that doing glenn gary glenn ross or pretty much any piece by mammoth is a process of looking at words that seem to be transcribed from an improvisation. They start, he starts sentences and drops them and starts a new sentence and drops that before you get a drift of what is on the person's mind. And it's very hard for actors to put that together. I know one actor who said trying to learn one of his scripts, after, after you tr- actually start trying to learn it, you want to kill yourself because you can't figure out what the false starts are about. But it seems to me because you're taking it off the person in the moment, you have the tone of voice that they go through with these false starts, which you don't have from a written script. Does that help you? Yeah. I mean, I tell the directors who work with me, you know, director, of course, wants to see the script and read the script. I say, okay, Here's my first crack at the script, but please don't make any decisions until I act it out. So the first rehearsal, which is always way too long, you know, I act out the people uh, that I'm planning to portray. And uh, that's the rehearsal process of me actually acting it out, you know, uh, trying to do uh, to bring in the uh, uh, persona, the vocal mannerisms at the same time that we're, you know, I'm showing it to the director and then over a series of weeks, I finally honed down the script, but it's really from physicalizing it. But I have a question for you. What does that mammoth language, how does that indicate a character to you differently than uh, on a mo- in a movie or a television show? Well, because he writes it, in a way that an improvisation would sound or in a way that a real person speaking sounds with many repetitions, many false starts. I want to, I want, I want to say that, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. In my handling of it, I tried to leave myself open to what could be going through the person's mind and then what cuts it short and tries a new approach. 
pretty much based on where the person is in the moment with regard to the other character. Is he trying to sell the other character? Is he trying to apologize or get out of trouble with the other actor? What's what's the uh, thing that's going on which is probably causing these breakdowns in syntax? You're shaking your head. What, what did I? What's what nerve did I strike? Well, the, the breaking in syntax is really what got me to what I do, and that started with this uh, uh, very interesting teacher I had in the conservatory, who said that in Shakespeare, uh, if a character that we know that we think about Shakespeare is going da 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 da, you know, iambic pentameter. And she said, if a character in the second beat says da-da, in other words, it goes da-da, da-da, da-da-da-da-da, that that da-da means that something's going on psychologically. And she gave the the example in Lear at the point that he says, never, 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 never. It's all trochies. It's all upside down. And I found that to be so fascinating. And you know, of course, in Shakespeare, you just say the words. You don't do all this. You know, you, you have to keep on the words, right? You may be doing all your inner stuff, but you got to speak the speech. And so I was so fascinated by that that I wanted to figure out a way to capture real people doing that, to capture real people breaking their syntax. And a linguist whose name I don't know, she was a stranger that I met at a party, told me that she was going to give me she was going to give me three questions that I could ask people that would guarantee that they would break their syntax, you know, their established syntax. And those three questions were, have you ever come close to death? Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? And do you remember the circumstances of your birth? Do you know the circumstances of your birth? So the first show that I made, I literally walked up to people in the streets of New York City and said, if you give me an hour of your time, I'll invite you to see yourself performed. And I had 20 actors. It wasn't just me. And if it was like the, the uh, you, know, uh, you know, I'd say, I know an actor who looks like you. So if it was the lifeguard at the gym, or Meredith Monk, the great composer, or, or I in my own show performed a woman at, who worked at J.C. Penney in their offices called Julia. And so for everybody I interviewed, we'd talk about whatever, swimming lanes at the, at the Y on 63rd Street. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Meredith Monk talked about uh, uh, bar talk. And then somewhere in that interview, I would say, have you ever come close to death? And those three questions, and lo and behold, their syntax would change all around. And so that's how I taught myself to listen for really what I think of as architects, architectures in speech that people make, their designs that they make in speech. Now, I don't ask those questions anymore, but that taught me, that taught me my process, really. And I heard you say once, that at that moment when they started answering those questions, they began to sing in a way. Did you mean by that, that I know you don't mean singing a tune, but did you mean somehow the music of their language and the sound of their tone took off? That's exactly right. Almost musically? It's right. That uh, people, not everybody, but, you know, look, I talked to a lot of people uh, in order to... uh, 
write a play. Uh, my last play, Notes from the Field, I talked to 250 people. I only performed 19 of them. So I'm really looking for the people who are, who do sin, you know, who do have mm. uh, very, uh, you know, to me, very beautiful uh, ways of, you know, the sentence falling apart, as you're talking about with Mamet. There is one monologue that I've heard you do that is especially striking to me, and that's called No Music. And you you title your pieces by something found in the conversation itself, right? Yeah. And No Music, I wondered why it was called No Music until almost near the end. And it turned out to be two words that really struck home. So much of the story was told in those two words. So maybe we can listen to it now. I walk past sometimes. They try to say things to me. I just ignore them. How you doing? What's my name? What's my number? Come here. What I'm come here for? I don't have nothing to say to y'all. Sometimes I'd be walking down the street with my earphones on. They think I'd be listening to music. But I be hearing everything, because that's one thing my mother told me. She said, don't be walking down the street just with your earphones in your ear and your music is loud and I cannot hear my surroundings. So sometimes I be walking down the street in my earphones and no music. I just be walking. I don't like to be bothered when I'm walking. And that's India Sledge from Baltimore, Maryland. That girl is remembering her mother talking to her. She's remembering the boys calling out to her on the street corner. She's going through a memory that's so powerful you can hear it in her voice. You can hear what's, what those experiences were like and how they affected her. And those are social interactions. If she read the transcript of that, it would sound completely different. Her voice would be completely different even if she rehearsed it and tried to get it natural sounding, the emotion goes away. It's not just emotion, the connection to the other person. I keep asking scientists if they could make time to do a, a brain scan when a person is telling a story impromptu and compared, compare that to what the scan looks like when they tell a story by reading it. To, out loud to someone else. When we read, all communicative tones fall, drop out, and what we get is just a mere processing of words. That's what I hear when I listen. I want to know what's going on in the brain. Is the brain not contacting social centers? You know, I mean, you're right in the middle of that. You're talking to somebody who's communicating to you with emotion. The idea strikes me that you, the listener, who then gives us the person, you listen to the person, and then you give us the person, that seems to be an addition that's very valuable. Your addition seems valuable because there's something we get that we wouldn't get if you just played a documentary five-minute clip of that person saying the exact same thing. Although there is some editing you do, am I wrong? 
Yeah. Well, I don't change any words, but sometimes just to tell the overall story, I may have to take something from, you know, like a minute before and a minute after and put it together. But I try not to interrupt it when I'm talking to them. Like if I go back and hear the interview and I think, why did I ask anything right then? Because I want to get that organic through line of where they're headed, no matter how long it takes them. You know? Yeah. 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 It's so interesting. What have you talked to brain scientists? Have you explored even just in your own thinking what is going on that causes the repetitions, the ums and errs and things like that? I have not, and I'm going to now that you are bringing that up, that possibility. I think I will. One thing is, I do believe many people are trying to make a song. And sometimes that stuff in the middle is stuff that they've heard other people say. For example, like. You know how people use that a lot? Like, like, like. And in my last show, Notes from the Field, there's a character who was about 30 years old. And he kept saying, you know what I'm saying? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then I interviewed a kid who was 18. And he no longer used, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? He said, you feel me? (laughs) And it was really hard to learn because not only was it like, I mean, those drove me crazy, right? Because I'm dedicated to trying to do it exactly word for word. Uh, You know, so when he says, you know, he would say, you feel me? And sometimes you say, Femi, and sometimes you say, fe. Oh, wow. You feel me? Feel me? Femi? Fe. Right? So it's interesting to me that like 10 years later, it's not about, you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of deeper. It's like, do you feel me? Yeah. When we come back from our break, Anna DeVere Smith talks about how her portraits of people have a purpose above simply being entertaining. And we talk about the importance of pauses. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alda Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? 
That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Anna DeVere Smith. It's tremendously entertaining to see real people transported to us through your voice and body and to examine and explore those characters. But then you do things like what I've, I've heard you describe. For instance, at Berkeley, you did half a show and then for the other half of the show, you broke the audience up and had them go into separate rooms and listen to one another in the same way you had listened to your characters. And there was an activist uh, motivation for that. It wasn't just entertainment. What's it like to listen to a stranger? You wanted them to hear one another's life experiences and points of view, I imagine. What was, what was, what was behind that from your point of view? Well, I think there's a danger with acting that we give the people, in the, in, in the case of what I do, which is, you know, trying to deal with social issues, if we give the people and the audience a sense that it's enough to come and watch. Mm. I remember Anita Hill telling me that after that whole thing, uh, that whole thing, those hearings, people would come up to her on the street and say, I watched the whole thing. Mm. As though they really accomplished something, as yeah, if they did right. their civic she's, duty. She's suffering. <laughs> she's <laughs> suffering. So you know. So with notes for the field, I really wanted the audience to think about uh, what their proximity to this problem of kids getting pushed out of school and going to jail was, and if they thought they could do anything about it. And so at the end of the first act, I said. When I had a bass player on stage with me, and we just said, well, okay, you know more than we know. So go out in groups of 20, we have facilitators, and talk about it. And then they came back and we performed a coda. So that was me trying to get, to use the theater as a convening place where communities can talk through some of their issues and see if they can come up with any solutions. What kind of reactions did you get from the people who went through that? Well, some people, um, you know, <laughs> at, Berkeley, <laughs> at Berkeley, the uh, manager of the Berkeley Repertory Theater, Susie Medock, is a particularly fearless person. And she would stand at the door <laughs> to see how many people left the theater. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to listen to anybody. I don't want to. I don't want to be in this group therapy stuff. This is too, this is too Berkeley for me. So, uh, but people, not that many left, actually. Um, 
you know, for some people, I think it's like, you know, I came to see Anna Devere Smith. I don't want to do this, you know, but for other people, it was very meaningful. And then what I didn't anticipate was the stress it put on the facilitators to hear, to be engaged in the conversations night after Mm. night. That could in itself be a force for change if we could, it seems to me, if we could get people to listen to one another around, not to talk to one another so much as to listen to one another. Exactly. I mean, one of the things I found in teaching communication is you have to listen more when you're communicating than when you're being communicated at. Mm. Because it can't be a communication at, it has to be with, has to be your communication partner, Mm. not your communication target. Those things are easy to say and hard to learn to do. Do you have among all of the people you've talked to, do people stand out? Is, is, there, is there one or two that you go back to in your mind and think, that was amazing what came out of that person? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many. Uh, Ann Richards. Mm, really? Uh, yeah, the I, late, I, I loved her. She was great. Wasn't she great? And she was a brilliant communicator. Brilliant. I just identify for people who don't know Ann Richards. Oh, yeah. So she was the former governor of Texas, the first woman governor of Texas. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe a rare Democrat as a governor of Texas. But mm-hmm. she was a great raconteur and uh, a real character. She had that wonderful one-liner about George Bush. Yeah. Poor poor George. He was born with a silver foot in his yeah. mouth. Yeah. That was a great, great joke. Yeah, and she told me, I asked her if she was the first woman, I thought she was the first woman governor of Texas. And she said, oh, no. Uh, Well, in the 20s, there was Pa Ferguson, who was governor. And Pa was married to Ma. And Pa got impeached. And Ma became governor. Now, she was the one when asked about bilingual education, who said, if the English language is good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad to have the chance to hear you do her, too. That's great. Uh, She was great. So she was just great. And uh, I mean, John Lewis is someone who I was able to interview in 2017. I'm so happy that I have that, uh, you know, given the fact that we've lost him, or actually it was before, around 2014. Um, And just so many people, so many people. And good stories and sad stories. I interviewed a woman in a prison who had sat on her bed while her boyfriend beat her daughter, and, uh, and she heard her daughter's head hitting the tub over and over again, and the little girl died, and they pretended that they lost her. Uh, And eventually, of course, she got caught, and that was a very dark story that I will never, ever forget. This is a stupid question, I know, but you never know. What you just said makes me wonder. You've talked to the lightness and the darkness in people, You've, you've entered into our humanness in a unique way. What do you come up with 
you know, it, I don't want to give you a polar choice. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? But what have you learned through this process that you might not have learned about what it is to be a person, to be a human person, instead of a Welsh Terrier? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, one thing, how mysterious we are. But your question is also very provocative because I asked a brilliant geneticist at Stanford why my dog, uh, who was a mutt, uh, but was part Australian cattle dog and had never been trained and never been on a ranch, but you know, cattle dogs are herders, how she knew how to herd, which she did. She would herd people. And he said, through DNA. And I said, well, how do we know what to do as people? He said, through culture, which I thought was very powerful. This idea is that it's through culture that we learn how to be. So when you say that about the terrier, I would say, you know, what makes us different is uh, the culture that's all around us. I don't mean like opera, but from the time we're born, or your mother sings to you or you hear the television or your father rocks you or, uh, or even the food that we eat. So uh, human beings are a real mystery to me, um, even people I know well. So you sound like you came to the end of that line of thought. So I have a question for you. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Yeah. Sing about it a little. Well, I don't know if I can sing. I haven't even ever talked about it very much, but... Uh, oh, well, you don't have to if you don't want to. No, I don't mind. I was driving down the 101 uh, freeway in California, and it's when I was in acting school. And all of a sudden, my car just, like, got hit and went all the way over to the far lane. And somehow I ended up on the side of the road alive. And the guy who had caused the accident was like all distraught and saying, I don't know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. He was high. Oy. And I just, the fact that I don't know how I got over to the other side of the road and that I'm alive was, oh boy, I just remember saying, thank you, God, for not killing me. And I was so young then. I was so young uh, and I so much I didn't know. Um, yeah, that was uh, near death. That, especially that last 20 seconds of what you just said, it really happened to you when you, when you said, I just remember, and then there was this long pause. You went there in that moment. You, you were talking from way back in your head. That wasn't prepared talk. I imagined you listening to the tape of that, of what you just said, and listening for the moments where that disruption occurred, especially that long pause. And, you, and then I pictured you doing that long pause in a performance. And during that time, something happens to the listener. It's very interesting. Do you fill in with what the thoughts are of the person? Do you think about that, or is it all the tone of voice and maybe a gesture? Well, I can't um, presume to know what the thoughts are. 
but I'm very grateful for uh, long pauses because of what you just said, that it gives the audience the air to think about what the person just said. And maybe, and I never know when, in a certain performance, my own imagination will come up with something that they may have thought, but I'm aware that it's my imagination and it's not what the person thought. Hmm. What do pauses mean to you uh, when they're written into a script? How do you deal with them? I'll tell you, I have a very special feeling about pauses. I think it's really important to, to think of a pause not as not speaking. It's not that you're just not speaking and everything goes dead. There's something churning during that pause. There's, you can't talk with your voice because you're talking with your brain to yourself or you're listening or you're reliving something. Something's interrupting the speech. And that's got to be an alive moment. You have, the pause can't just be nothingness. Pauses aren't that. Just what we were just talking about. That pause was where you went back into that moment. There was a part of your brain that was still having that crash. And, and when I see an actor take a pause by just going dead, I get a little pissed off because I want to, that, that, that's, that's the most interesting moment. It'll show up on their face if they find out some clue about what, what the character is going through that makes the character pause. So I, I hate to say we're sort of at the end of our time, and I have so many more things I want to talk to you about. So maybe we can get together some other time. But we always end our shows with seven quick questions. Do you mind? Go right ahead. They're generally about communication. What do you wish you really understood? Why people speak different languages. Why they speak different languages. Huh. That's a, a subject for us to talk about next time. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? That's not right. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty direct. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? A woman in prison, after I performed, asked me, how do you keep it together? Whoa. Did you ask her why, what she meant? I think she meant, like, how do I manage to pass in public as a, you know, regular person after I got up there and did all this acting? Like, how do you keep it together? That always brings up interesting experiences for people. Here's one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Boy, that is so hard, man. <laughs> oh. Do you have a technique? Well, first of all, I, I want to know why they are compulsive talkers. Yeah. I don't know what to do because I tend to be fairly polite about that sort of stuff. What do you do, man? I mean, that is rough. You know, I think I do different things. It kind of depends on what my relationship is to the person. 
And sometimes I say, that's really interesting that you said that. You know, I take the other end of the conversation. Uh, but I have to say it loud and get in before they change to another. Because so, the compulsive talker doesn't just talk about one thing. They have a, 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 an infinity of subjects to talk about. It's, it's a, it is a hard thing to do, but it is a communication problem. Here's one. When we're able to have dinner again in large groups and you're sitting next to someone you don't know, how do you start up a real, authentic conversation with that person? Well, I would like to avoid saying, what do you do? Mm. Because I don't think work is the only thing that makes us who we are. I might have a current event that I might ask him about. Mm. But I think normally I say, what do you do? Or I say, I say, don't say, what do you do? I say, what's your work? Ah, so do you leave them free to talk, to distinguish between that mm -hmm. and living? Mm -hmm. What's your yeah. work? What gives you confidence? Nothing. I don't have confidence. I live in doubt. Wow. Of all the people, I, I wouldn't expect to say that. You're the main one. I don't have confidence. How can you not have confidence when you go up and bring other people to, to strangers? I have curiosity. I don't have confidence. Yeah. That's so, there's another conversation. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? A book called Dibs in Search of Self, which was about... Give, give in Search of... What? Uh, Dibs, it's D-I-B-B-S, it's the name of a boy. Dibs in Search of Self. Ah. It's written, about a, written by a child psychiatrist about a little boy who was having so many problems and... She did a kind of therapy with him called play therapy. Her name is Virginia Axline, and she found out he was a genius. Mm. And this was before we talked about autism as a, you know, common parlance. This was way back in the 60s. So I can't let this go. Why did that change your life? Because there was so much love uh, between that boy and that therapist and also eventually with his mother and the therapist. And I think it just led me to understand something about how beautiful it could be to help someone discover themselves and unlock themselves. Um, and I didn't pursue that as a career but it was so moving and so beautiful. And here's maybe what's relevant. It was a real story, but it was as beautiful as a work of art. In a funny way, it sounds to me like that's what you pursued in a completely different way. You, you find the story that a person has and you give us that person telling their story. It's an intimate connection you have with that person. After you leave them, having spent an hour with them, you then spend probably dozens of hours. So many hours. So many. Well, this has been a wonderful time with you. I really have enjoyed it. And I'm well, so grateful I'm, to you for coming on. 
I am, as the people used to say in Baltimore, the black people used to say in Baltimore, I'm just tickled. <laughs> I'm just tickled to be with you. Me too, to be with you. Thanks so much, Anna. It's great. Blessings. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science for the benefit of humanity. As an actor, Anna DeVere Smith has been featured in television series like The West Wing and Nurse Jackie. But it's as the creator of works like Notes from the Field that she's carved out a unique place in American theater spotlighting what she calls the school-to-prison pipeline. Notes from the Field was first produced as an award-winning play, and it led later to an HBO documentary and a Random House book. Anna's website is annadevere-smith.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Neil Shubin. He studies how animals like us got to have the parts that make us up through evolution. Six years ago, he and his colleagues made a breakthrough discovery when they spotted the snout of a flat-headed fish poking out of a rock in the Canadian Arctic. Every time you bend your wrist, every time you shake your head, you can thank these creatures living in Devonian ecosystems 375 million years ago. And we know that because we can trace the fossil evidence all the way back to that time. So this fish tells us a lot about how animals took the first steps on land. But more, even more importantly, and I, honestly, in my opinion, more beautifully, is that it connects to us, that there's part of our history locked inside of these fish. Neil Shubin, who not only does science, but writes clearly and vividly about it, too. Next time on Clear and Vivid. Meanwhile, on Thursday, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Alison Mouatri. He's figured out a way to grow miniature human brains or more accurately, little clumps of human brain cells in a dish. So we start with um, skin cells from people, and by activating only four genes inside that skin cells, we can turn them back into these uh, embryonic-like stem cells that have the ability to become any tissue of the body. And my lab is specialized in brain cells. So we add factors to drive the cells to become brain tissues, and then they self-organize in three dimensions, forming these brain organoids. 
Alison Mawatry is using these brain organoids to study the early development of real brains, including the brains of our cousins, the Neanderthals. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.